Hey everybody, how's it going? Thanks for joining me this afternoon. I've got a great stream for you here. You know, oftentimes you plan a stream, you think about what you're going to talk about, and then the news kind of just storms in. Uh, that's kind of been the case today. My stream was supposed to be primarily about an essay uh, from Nick Land. I'm doing my series on Nick Land and explaining some of his works, but we just had a massive ruling from the Supreme Court on affirmative action. And so there's a lot to say about that as well. So I'll probably start with a few remarks on kind of the affirmative action uh, ruling, what it means, what it doesn't, uh, and then go ahead and move into the original topic of the stream. But before we do that, guys, let's hear from today's sponsor. All right, guys, I need to talk to you about today's sponsor, Noble Gold. Now, you may have noticed that things are a little unstable out there and you might be looking for something that can protect your investments. You can reign in wealth like King Charles with a gold IRA from Noble Gold Investments. Just as King Charles' magnificent crown symbolized wealth and power, a gold IRA can fortify your own financial kingdom. Imagine the confidence that comes from a retirement backed by a tangible proven asset, gold. An asset that's not at the mercy of unpredictable market swings. A crown may not be included, but isn't a future free of financial stress a worthy throne? Like royalty, enjoy the luxury of choice. Gold, silver, platinum, or palladium, the realm is yours to command. Fend off concerns about economic downturns and let your wealth thrive with the timeless security of precious metals. This month, the first solid quarter-ounce gold standard bullion coin ever issued with Charles III's image can be yours with your own qualified gold IRA or 401k rollover of $50,000 or higher. You can't go wrong with Noble Gold Investments. Call Noble Gold Investment at 877-646-5347 to get started or visit McIntyreGold.com. That's McIntyreGold.com. All right, guys. So like I said, we had a massive ruling that came out from the Supreme Court today, very important, which uh, kind of struck down in some ways uh, the Harvard practice and the practice of many different colleges of uh, choosing students based on their racial background, unequally weighting people based on their racial background, looking for specific minorities and elevating them, allowing them in with lower test scores, lower other uh, metrics so that they can balance the student population to uh, kind of engineer it for whatever mix they think is optimal or deserve. Uh, this came at the heels of uh, you know the fact that many different Asian students and white students were denied entry to colleges despite having excellent test scores, having higher merit uh, because of their race, because they didn't fall into one of the groups that was favored by this outcome. Now, obviously, affirmative action has been a big part of America for a long time. And this means that these rulings could have trickle-down effects, not just at the college level, but down to businesses and other organizations that also still use affirmative action. Now, uh, we'll, we'll get into what this means. Uh, there, there, this is a victory, just to, to be clear. At the outset, we'll say this is a good thing. This is an important thing. This is an, a victory for the right for conservatives. Uh, this ruling matters. Uh, so I don't want to say that it doesn't. I don't want to, to kind of be Debbie Downer on this. This is a big deal. Uh, it opens up a lot of avenues. But there is a mistake that some people make. Uh, we're, we're seeing kind of a mix of it online right now as people react to this ruling. Uh, there is a mistake that a lot of conservatives make where they see something like a, an election win 
they see a Supreme Court uh, ruling, they see a piece of legislation happen, and they think that's the end. They think, okay, I've secured the victory. This was the whole point. This was the objective. And once that's done, the game is over. I can go back to grilling or whatever, right? I don't have to worry about this anymore. But that's not the case. The, these battles are not won uh, just as soon as you pass one piece of legislation or you get one Supreme Court ruling, because oftentimes these things do not enforce themselves. In fact, as many people have pointed out in this ruling, there seems to already be a loophole in that it says that the colleges are still allowed to look at the racial background of the, of the person if they reference it, if they claim this as part of their character. Okay, so uh, I'm not allowed to preference you you and your SAT scores just because you happen to be black or Latino or something else that the college is looking to add more to to create more diversity. Uh, but if you reference this as something you overcame, okay, well, my background in this neighborhood or because of my race disadvantaged me and this is something that I overcome, I can give that extra weight. And that matters because many colleges already saw this coming. They already knew that this ruling was very likely to occur given the disposition of the current court. And so they've been looking to pivot away from things like SAT or ACT scores that might provide a more objective understanding of a student's ability to kind of deal with the information, to deal with the uh, subject matter that they're going to be looking at, instead have been looking at more subjective things like essays that will allow the college to instead uh, you know, kind of weasel in something that's harder for uh, different enforcement agencies to hold down. The thing about SAT scores and ACT scores is they're hard numbers. You can argue about whether they're legitimate or not. You can argue about the the value of the tests, but they are quantifiable numbers. They can be put on a spreadsheet. They can they can be accessed over different demographics, and that makes it a lot easier for people who would attempt to sue, who would attempt to bring action. Uh, for different enforcement agencies to look at hard data and say, okay, obviously you are preferencing one group over another. We have the numbers to prove it. When you do it in a with an essay, you can always just say, oh, well, these students are just disproportionately writing more impressive essays. Uh, you know, they they are overcoming these things, and that's what you know we're looking at. And so there's this this amount of weaselness in there. Now the the thing is that the Supreme Court ruling also said that explicitly that these universities are not allowed to use essays to try to circumvent the ruling that they're not allowed to kind of basically re-implement this regime of racial preference by using a uh, an essay-based system as opposed to something like the SAT or ACT. But it seems like schools like Harvard don't really think that's going to be the case. In fact, Harvard already issued right away a, a response, a reaction to this saying, oh, we'll comply with the ruling and immediately then pointed to the loophole in the ruling where it said it could consider the ability of students to overcome uh, challenges uh, connected to their race. And so uh, they're already pointing to saying, hey, we already see this loophole. We already plan to exploit it. And there's nothing we, that you can do about it. Now, there is something that conservatives can do about this. And this is going to be the real test of whether this ruling matters is they can follow up with lawfare. Like I said, the main problem that most conservatives have when they see this kind of victory is they say, okay, we got the ruling we wanted, we got the law we wanted, we got the election we wanted, and now we're done and we can just go back and, and do our thing. We don't have to worry about this anymore. There's no follow through. There's no, there's no dogged pursuit 
of this ruling actually being enforced. And that allows the left, that allows progressives to start manipulating this procedural outcome, to hide, hide the ball, and just kind of bury the, the victory kind of under all this procedure and continue to do things that the way that they were doing them before. And so the, the real question is going to be, will conservatives, will the GOP have the fortitude and the, and the kind of the, the dedication to, to chase this down? Are, are tons of lawsuits going to get filed? Are different uh, state legislatures going to start directly uh, outlawing uh, affirmative action on the state level? Will uh, will attorney generals, uh, will, will the Department of Justice, I mean, obviously not this Department of Justice, they won't do anything. But in theory, let's say we get a Trump Department of Justice or a, or a DeSantis Department of Justice, will they actually chase this down? Will prosecutors make these cases to, to make sure that this stuff gets enforced? And that's kind of concerning because I think that there's still the case that kind of most conservatives are still, you know, that they, they don't like the idea that affirmative action is on the books, but there will be a very real effect. I mean, the, the left is correct about this. The number of minorities attending colleges was artificially inflated on purpose by affirmative action. That's explicitly its goal was to do that. Right. And so th those numbers will go down. If this is if this new standard is actually applied, if this case is actually properly applied, if this ruling is enforced. And the question is, will conservatives be comfortable with that? Will, will kind of the reality of what this means setting in kind of temper their interest in actually pursuing its enforcement? And if the answer to that is yes, and the answer is unfortunately probably yes, then the ruling won't account to much. There's also, of course, the fact that uh, affirmative action in colleges, while very important, is not the whole story. I mean, the college one matters really significantly because especially these Ivy League schools are obviously the gateways to kind of social status in the United States. They provide that ability to climb the ladder. They provide the credentials necessary and the networking capacity necessary to kind of enter the halls of power and become a ruling elite. It's not about whether people at Harvard or Yale are actually smarter. In fact, many of them are just learning complete bunk at this point, right? The university is in many ways not teaching them anything of value to actually do their job. But what it does is confer a particular status, a particular credential, a particular uh, kind of gold card that gets you into uh, a certain level of elite uh, competency. And so the ability of different people to, to go through that really matters. And when you have all, a, a certain social class that is locked out of it or artificially elevated into it, then that shapes your ruling class, especially if people who are elevated are you know beholden to a particular political party. That's going to shape the way that your voting works. That's going to shape the way that your decisions get made. And so this getting struck down at the college level, level definitely matters. Now, more important would be to actually get rid of kind of college in general as the active thing that credentialize, uh, that, that gives that credential, right? That gives, that confers that status. The college itself, itself is kind of a problem. It's not kind of a problem. It's a huge problem. And conservatives are certainly thinking about how to solve that. At least now I've seen obviously big movement on that with especially people like Chris Rufo. And so there, there is an understanding of that issue, but the reality is college isn't going away tomorrow. Uh, they're not going to seize the endowment, endowments and raise the properties to the ground uh, anytime soon. 
And so that means that who goes there does make a big difference. So this ruling, again, is a victory, and it does offer this opportunity to of lawfare. It does create a situation where there is a legal basis to con- continually harass these institutions on what will very likely be their continued uh, uh, interest in using affirmative action. They'll probably continue to implement affirmative action without any hesitation. And the question is, will conservatives bring those cases? Because if they do, if they are relentless about uh, pursuing the legal action that is now open to them under the Supreme Court ruling, if you can get uh, district attorneys and and, and attorneys general, uh, if you can get the Department of Justice, if you can get people working on this and pushing on this, there could be change made. There's now that legal option to kind of gum up the works. It won't happen overnight. This isn't going to change the world. This isn't going to set everything right right away. But that opportunity still exists. I'm I'm hesitant about the ability of conservatives to stick to this, of Republican politicians and their willingness to really pursue this. But at least that avenue exists, and that is important. The ruling is a win. Of course, there are other essential rulings that need to happen. You know, there, there's still things like uh griggs or griggs v uh, duke power which created this test of disparate impact a disparate impact is an insane law that basically says it's illegal to ignore race you have to it's you know the conservative ideal of uh race blind society is literally illegal under our current civil rights framework and you have to at all times be aware of kind of what you're doing and how it's impacting different races and if there's any disparate impact if there's any different outcome that happens under you know under a regime under a test under anything uh, and it can be uh, shown that it's unequal due to race then all of a sudden you're in a scenario where uh, you're violating civil rights law and so this is this is a kind of one step in a much longer and more complicated process that would have to take place but again it is a win you need to take your w's where they are uh, and you, you know so it's fine to celebrate this it's fine to support this it's just the only thing you want to avoid is the idea that this simply grants some some magical wand that now solves all of these problems that that gets rid of kind of the civil rights uh, you know regime and gets rid of the uh, desire to kind of hold down one group to elevate another. Uh, these things will continue. The universities will continue uh, to do this, but at least now there is a legal weapon available to those who want to push back against it. And that's certainly something that's very good, uh, that, that's good to celebrate. Uh, so uh, I'm sure that a lot of people will have, I can already see some super chats popping up around this. So that's probably not going to be the end of the discussion on affirmative action. But I'll just put that at the beginning here so you can comment on it, uh, because I did have a whole nother talk that I wanted to get into. Uh, so we'll, we'll go ahead and dive into Nick Land and uh, the problem of binding political sovereignty now and we'll probably come back to the supreme court ruling and affirmative action here in just a minute so let's go ahead and look at uh, our essay for today from nick land uh, called the odysseus problem now this comes from uh, nick land's uh, xeno systems blog this is from the xeno systems fragments uh, again for many people who find land difficult to understand they find his language complicated or uh, it obfuscates too much it's it, you know I understand that. The good news is that the Xenosystem stuff is very short. Uh, while it might still be dense in some ways, 
uh, it might still be complicated in certain ways. Most of these are only a page or two, you know, very, very uh, rare that they go beyond four or five pages. And so uh, they're bite sized. That doesn't mean that there, there isn't a lot there, that it can't be a little complicated to get through. But at least it's short enough for you to kind of read a page, think about it and break it down. Uh, now, this one, I think, is actually pretty easy to understand in general. Uh, so, so we're going to have a little easier time with this one, but I still think it's a very valuable essay. Now, the other thing about Xenosystems is that land is usually uh, responding to people in it. Some, some of these essays are just him thinking about problems by himself, but oftentimes he's responding to people. Oftentimes it's, it's uh, Mencius Mulbug, Curtis Yarvin, but it's other thinkers in kind of that neo-reactionary sphere, sphere as well. And so one thing that can be confusing about the, the Xenosystem stuff is he'll just reference things as if he assumes that the reader knows them or but he doesn't care whether the reader knows them or not. And so that can be a little confusing because you, you if you're not familiar with the other works, if you're not familiar with kind of the dialogue that was going on during that time, it can be easy to get lost in some of that. So they do take a little bit of effort in that you kind of have to take a little bit of time and review them, look at how these things are connected. Or you can just listen to a guy like me and I'll, I'll kind of explain it. But, but, but these are a decent place to start, even though they're a little disjointed. If you want to get bite-sized chunks of Nick Land, that'll be a little easier to look through. So that said, let's go ahead and jump into the, the essay here and, uh, and see what he has to say. Uh, Moldbug's insistence that sovereignty is conserved surely counts as one of the most significant assertions in the history of political thought, is arguably the fundamental axiom of his system, and its implications are almost inestimably, in, in, inestimable, I can say this, inestimably profound. Be careful about reading complicated things on live streams, guys. Okay, so uh, that's a lot of high praise of Curtis Yarvin here by Nick Land. Uh, and I got to say, in this case, I think it's pretty well warranted. Uh, sovereignty is conserved is one of Moldbug's kind of most important things uh, to think about. It's one of those things that I struggled with when I first started reading Moldbug. I had I had a lot of problem kind of put, wrapping my my soft radio, you know, talk radio conservative uh, brain kind of around this concept when I first encountered it. So so it's one of some significance. Uh, so sovereignty is conserved. What does that mean? It means that you cannot throw the ring into Mount Doom, right? Th this is always the libertarian desire. And Moldbug, Curtis Yarvin, coming from a, uh, from a libertarian background uh, is very familiar with this desire, right? Get rid of power. That, that's the key. You just get rid of state power and then you don't have to worry about it anymore. You get you shrink the size of the state or you eliminate the state and then the state is no longer a problem. But Yarvin's point is that sovereignty cannot be destroyed. You cannot throw the ring of, of uh, power into Mount Doom. The only question is who will wield the ring of power? And so because of that, it, it, we, we don't have a question of should sovereignty exist? but rather uh, who will wield it and how will it be wielded, which is difficult for a lot of Americans because we're under the impression, you know, we kind of have this story that sovereignty is bound by the Constitution, right? That's the, the big idea, is uh, you, you get a, a, a fancy con constitutional apparatus and you can control sovereignty you, or you can give it to the people, right? Popular sovereignty. 
Uh, we're going to look a little more into this essay to get a better idea of kind of what what his uh, rejection is of those kind of uh, ideas. Uh, but th that's kind of the basic idea that sovereignty is conserved. You can't get rid of it. It's always going to be around. So sovereignty is conserved says that anything that appears to bind sovereignty is itself in reality true sovereignty binding uh, something else and something less is therefore a negative answer to the Odysseus problem. So uh, what's the Odysseus problem? The Odysseus problem is the problem of, you know, Odysseus is this king, right? And he's, he's traveling back after uh, the Iliad, after the, the battle in Troy. And uh, one, of the, one of the many adventures is uh, the Song of the Sirens, right? And he's got this problem. He wants to hear the Song of the Sirens, but if he does, uh, then he goes mad and, and, you know, takes the ship into the rocks. And so he's a king, uh, you know, his, his men listen to his orders, right? And so uh, he recognizes that if he hears this siren song, that he is going to demand that uh, the sailors take them into, uh, into the sirens. And so to stop this, he gets lashed to the, you know, kind of the, the mast of the boat and the sailors get the order that no matter what he says until they're done, they're not allowed to free him. So you're binding the sovereign, right? You're binding the king to the mast of the ship so that he can't take the ship off course. And the sailors put beeswax in their ears. And you guys are probably very familiar with the story. But the problem is like, how do we bind sovereignty, right? And for many people, the answer is, well, you get a constitution, checks and balances, blah, blah, blah. But his point, the point of that Moldbug and, and now Yarvin is making is that... Uh, if there is something binding sovereignty, then that is what's actually in charge, right? So, for instance, uh, the the media is supposed to be a check on government power, right? The media is going to keep the government, uh, you know, honest because it can always inform the public, and the public has popular sovereignty, right? That's where the sovereignty actually lies. So, how do you control government power? Will you give? the power to kind of get rid of the government to the people. And then you have the media, you know, it's got the duty of uh, informing the public of what happens with the government. Cause there's no way every individual person is ever going to be able to pay attention to everything that happens in the government. And then they will bind sovereignty, right? They, they'll bind it by having uh, the media hold the government accountable and the, to the people. And then the people will hold the government accountable at elections. Of course, what do we know? Uh, actually that ends up with a media run state. Uh, what we that's what we have in America, because the key to controlling power in America is controlling what people think. If the people are sovereign, if if the people are supposed to theoretically be in charge, then what's the best way as a ruling elite to stay in charge? Well, to control what people think, to control how they vote. And so instead of the media and the people becoming, uh, you know, controlling sovereignty, what happens is instead the media becomes what is actually sovereign. The story that is produced is what becomes actually sovereign because if something is restraining sovereignty, then it is the actual sovereign. If there's something that overrules you, then you are not sovereignty, sovereign because what sovereign means is absolute power. It's complete power. And so if, if there is something that checks your power, if there's something that controls your power and wields it, wields it on a regular basis to control you, then that is you are not actually sovereign. There's something above you. And so whatever is sovereign over you is the real ruler, right? So that, that's what they're talking about here when it says sovereignty is conserved. 
And if there's something binding sovereignty, then that thing is the actual sovereign. So continuing with Land's essay here, can sovereignty bind itself? If Moldbuck's assertion is accepted, constitutional government is impossible, except as a futile, uh, futile aspiration, a noble lie, or a cynical joke. So here I'm actually going to disagree slightly with uh, Land and probably uh, in, in Moldbug to some extent, right? So I wouldn't say that constitutional government is impossible. I wouldn't say that it's a lie entirely. However, I would say that our understanding of constitutional government is a real problem. So if you look at people, say, uh, like Joseph de Maestra or uh, Carl Schmitt, and by the way, these two guys are pretty well linked. In many ways, Carl Schmitt is kind of the secularization of many of the things that Joseph de Maestra said. Uh, a lot of us end up uh, referencing Schmitt more often because he's a little more to the quick. He's a little more concise with his words and he's a little more modern. And the fact that he's also more secular speaks to a lot of people who aren't as religious, where, you know, Joseph de Maestra just immediately invokes the power of God and the Pope. Uh, you know, Schmidt is a little more more secular. However, they are both working inside of this framework what, of what would eventually be called the kind of decisionism. And in that case, they're, they're kind of very similar. And both of them acknowledge, at least to some extent, that constitutions do have a role. There are, there are constitutional governments. Uh, they just don't think that uh, the constitution as we understand it is kind of the, the real way that people are bound. So for instance, De Maestra says that constitutions, you know, they have a value, but their value is basically only in kind of reiterating what is already the traditions and folk ways and history of the people. So for Demestra, if a constitution gets too long, if it tries to ban too much, assert too much, then it's going to kind of fall apart. It's not going to be as valuable because it's having to say things that shouldn't need to be said. Uh, the, what, what really binds a government, what really controls a government, is not the constitutional words on the paper, but the, the norms and values and traditions and folkways of the people who have now kind of been formalized inside that constitution. It's not, it's not the words on the paper. It's not the legalese itself that stops a, you know, a government from doing horrendous things. It's the fact that the people would not stand for it and that the traditions of the people echo through the ruler itself. So for a constitution to really have any value, it basically just has to be reiterating what is already there. Again, we can see this in something uh, like the uh, uh, like the the twelve tables in Rome, right? The the in the ancient city, Colange makes this point uh, that the law was was at first respected because only because the people would never stand for the city taking away what had already been kind of substantiated by the traditions of the people, and so the the law code is simply an echo of what the people already would have self enforced. And, and it's just a formalization of what was already kind of written on the hearts and the spirits and the belief of the people. And so the, the city simply has to instantiate it because it couldn't take it away. But over time, if that is not uh, respected, if people are not kind of repeating those traditions and those don't sit, sit in the heart of the people, uh, then, the, then the Constitution simply becomes a, a loose document that has no real meaning. Uh, a lot of people speak on this. Again, uh, you know, Schmidt calls it political theology, right? That that the the constitution, that the the form of the government is just a reflection, uh, a a secularized reflection of the people's understanding 
of the way that they re, they were uh, re, interact with God. So so it's a reflection of the uh, interaction with the people and God, and then the people in the state. Uh, there's also people like Spangler, or or Alexander Dugan, who talk about kind of once these things that were once written on the heart of the people get translated into paper. There's a certain amount of time where that happens. Uh, but but then it kind of loses its metaphysical energy. It loses its animating spirit uh, as it gets transferred to other people who were kind of weren't originally part of of that kind of that creation of that tradition. And that allows more people to come in. So that's good. But it, but it's kind of sets a timer on how long that constitution can last. But we'll get more into that in a second here. The, the point being is I, I think they might overstate the case a little bit to say that a constitution uh, is doomed, that constitutional government is impossible. It's it's more that it's limited to a certain amount of time. It's it's that there's kind of a uh, a, a limit to how far civilizations can expand, uh, kind of their original ethos, their original uh, uh, tradition under a constitutional government. So let's continue reading here. In addition to Moldbug's powerful arguments, we uh, we know from the work of Kurt Gadel that the Odysseus problem is at least partially insoluble since it, it is logically impossible for there to be a perfect not. Uh, so for those who are unaware uh, what, what he's talking about there, the work of, and I'm probably pronouncing his last name wrong there, so sorry, but Kurt. But but uh, Kurt was a, a mathematician and a logician, and he is uh, known for a couple of things, but one of them is uh, the fact that he thought the American Constitution could be used to create a, a dictatorship. And the reason he thought that the American Constitution could be used to create a dictatorship is he pointed to Article 5 of the Constitution. Article 5 of the Constitution uh, explains how to amend the Constitution. So if you want to change the Constitution, the directions to do that are in Article 5. Now, the problem is that Article 5 allows you to change pretty much anything in the Constitution, including Article 5. So you could use Article 5 to change Article 5. You could amend the Constitution to change uh, the way you amend the Constitution, and you could make it easier each time. And so essentially, there's the, the Article 5 of the Constitution creates an escape clause where anyone who wanted to could basically eliminate uh, the difficulty of changing the Constitution in the first place, and you could make it say whatever you wanted to say. Uh, funny enough, we didn't actually take that. Our regime just used, uh, uh, used other avenues to do that. So uh, that, that's not exactly uh, how uh, we escaped uh, the binding knot of the Constitution. But either way, the point is there is no perfect knot to bind a government. Even the American Constitution, which was kind of famously designed specifically to control these different forces, uh, has a loophole built directly into the Constitution that lets you alter the Constitution whenever you want to and make it easier to alter the Constitution to the point where you could basically just pass laws by fiat if you wanted to. Uh, that, so that's kind of his point there. However well constructed the Constitution might be, it cannot, in principle, seal itself reliably against the possibility of, uh, uh, of a surreptitious undoing. In a sufficiently complex self-referential constitutional order, there will always be permissible procedures whose consequences have been completely anticipated, uh, who have not been completely anticipated, and whose consistency uh, with the con uh, uh, continuation of the system cannot be ensured in advance. All right, so what's he saying there? Well, he's basically just, again, I'm not sure how familiar uh, Land was with Carl Schmitt upon writing this, uh, but he's basically just saying exactly what Carl Schmitt said, which was that uh, constitutions cannot 
ever completely predict uh, exceptions to the Constitution. No matter how good your Constitution is, no matter how complicated it is, no matter how brilliant your founders were and how far they could think in advance, there will always be things that come up that the Constitution does not cover, right? Does not uh, account for. That That's just the nature of the real world. In the real world, things come up that are not covered under your Constitution. So in those moments there will be opportunities for extra constitutional things to take place. In fact, Carl Schmidt specifically says, this is his definition of sovereignty. If you want to figure out who is sovereign, if you're not sure who is sovereign in a system and you want to understand who is sovereign, look to find out who can decide when there's an exception, who can create the, uh, the state of exception in which uh, the constitution no longer applies. And that person is actually sovereign. Now, Interestingly, you know, there are constitutions that have allowed for kind of a chain of succession during that period. So, for instance, many people hear the term dictator and they think of a you know crazy authoritarian guy like Kim Jong-un who just feeds you to the dogs or whatever if he doesn't like you. But that's not the original meaning of the word dictator. Dictator was actually an official political office in Rome that would be uh, invoked if there was an emergency. So normally in Rome, you have two consuls every year, right? You had basically like two co-presidents uh, who shared authority along with a Senate and the Senate had checks on it. There's, there's uh, you know, tribunes of the plebs and stuff. There, there's all these political uh, inner workings that might limit the ability of government to do its thing. That's on purpose. It, it kind of controls the government, right? This is the idea of divided government. However, Rome understood that there were moments where you couldn't do that, where there was like an existential threat, an invasion, a crisis, a military, you know, something. And you had to have somebody who was completely in charge and able to make all the decisions. And in those moments, they could appoint a dictator. Now, the dictator was only for a specific amount of time, usually six months or a year, uh, though later on that, that didn't hold as well. But uh, but but there's a prescribed amount of time that the dictator would be in charge and they would only be in charge as long as they were addressing a very specific problem. And once and during that time, they had very wide authority, though, interestingly enough, they still couldn't get rid of the Constitution. So that's an important part of that as well as the, the Constitution was still uh, in place. It simply uh, was granting kind of ultimate authority to this dictator for a certain amount of time. And then once the issue was resolved, the, the uh, dictator is supposed to step down. Uh, and so this is where you get uh, Cincinnatus, right? Uh, he's famous for kind of stepping in and becoming dictator. Uh, and even though everybody kind of wanted him to be king, he refused it and he stepped down from the dictatorship. Uh, that's why they named, uh, you know, it's uh, Cincinnati, Ohio. Uh, it's after uh, Cincinnatus, which which many people compared George Washington to. Uh, and so the, the, the idea of dictatorship uh, where someone would step in and there was a prescribed way in which people would take over during an emergency could be built into constitutions. So Schmidt would say like, there is a way to build this line of succession into your constitution. But of course, even then the dictator is only really bound by his duty to the constitution and what the people will stand for, which is why Cincinnati is a story at all, right? Because he could have been King. The, the people would have allowed him to be King, but he denied it. He, he, he said that, you know, the principles are, of this are more important to me, and I'm going to go back to my farm and 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 grow cabbages, right? And so, uh, so 
at the end of the day, even though there is a constitutional allowance for a dictatorship that that ends the dictator's power, it's really only an agreement between the ruler and the ruled and understanding that that the ruler can only get away with so much, even if he is a dictator for a certain amount of time. And, you know, that the people will will not accept him long term. That kind of limits the power of the dictator. The Constitution itself, even though it technically has rules written down, isn't really what actually stops the dictator from continuing to rule. And you can tell that because, uh, you know, later on you had, you know, dictators for life. You know, you had Sulla, you had uh, Julius Caesar. Uh, obviously, eventually we just get emperors. Uh, they, they, they don't, you know, no one declares them kings, but they become kings uh, kind of under under the principate. And so, uh, and at that point, the the people were ready for a king. They they were ready for an emperor. Uh, the the constitution itself no longer bound the office of dictator uh, the way it had done so before, uh, kind of this moment. And so uh, that that's kind of the the point here is that uh, the no constitution, no matter how perfectly created, uh, no matter how perfectly planned, can ever plan for the exception. And in those moments of exception. Uh, you can see kind of the Constitution get thrown out. Uh, we see this in American history. We see this uh, with people like Lincoln and uh, and FDR. He'll he'll reference those in a second here. Yet it would be obviously misleading to assume that such concerns were not already active during the formulation of the American Constitution. It is precisely because some quite lucid comprehension of the Odysseus problem was at work that the founders envisaged the grounding of principles of Republican constitutionalism as a division of powers whereby the component units of disintegrated sovereignty bound each other. The animating system of incentives was not, uh, would, uh, was not to rest upon a naive expectation of altruism or voluntary restraint, but upon a, system, uh, a systematically integrated network of suspicion. Formally installing the anti-monarchical impulse as an enduring distributed function. If the Republic was to work, it would be because the fear of power in other hands permanently overrode the greed for power in one's own. And so, yeah, Land is here just acknowledging the fact that, uh, hey, this isn't new, right? Like this problem isn't new. Uh, the, the American founders were perfectly aware of this issue. So credit where it's due to the founders here. They obviously understood this problem and the Constitution was an exercise in attempting to solve it, even if it did so imperfectly. Uh, it was still something they weren't completely aware of. This is the whole point of a lot of the Federalist Papers, right? Federalist 51, famously. Uh, th there are a number of Federalist Papers addressing exactly this issue uh, that that uh, of kind of how sovereignty could be bound or the difficulty of a kind of binding sovereignty. And so because of that, he's kind of giving them their due here that they understood what was going to happen in many ways. Uh, th this is something that I think uh, a lot of people who are can maybe in this sphere who are critical of the American founding or of the American Constitution don't do enough. They don't they don't give the founders their due because in many ways they project our modern understanding backwards onto the founders. The modern understanding is that you just have words on a piece of paper and they say no. And so you can't do a thing. But the founders were perfectly aware that that was not actually what bound people to the words written in the Constitution. Now, they may have still put too much faith in division of powers, division of sovereignty. They're, they're pulling uh, very heavily from Montesquieu and his observations, Baron de Montesquieu, and his observations on kind of the British system. Montesquieu was a big uh, proponent of the British system. He liked that power was divided between 
the king and the church and the house of lords and commons and judiciary. And so this is where a lot of our branches of government come from. But but the founders were aware that the branches in and of themselves were not the only thing that was going to hold this together. And this is why it was so often iterated by the founders that people had to be vigilant. They had to be on guard. They had to love liberty. Uh, they, you know, they wanted all of these things to be a, a deep part of the American identity because that was the only way they were going to kind of perpetuate themselves forward. Uh, and so if you did not have that animating uh, values, those traditions, those folkways, those American identities uh, kind of deeply seated in the people, then the words on the paper didn't really matter, which is why you had, you know, guys uh, uh, like Adams saying, you know, the Constitution is only good for a moral and religious people. It doesn't work for anybody else because, you know, without those presuppositions, without those understandings of kind of where our morality would come from and what kind of culture we would have and what kind of systems we would employ, then, you know, the, the, the basic words on a sheet of paper of the Constitution, they weren't actually going to do any governing. They were never going to matter. And so they were fully aware of this. Now, the real trick and the real problem, I think, that kind of came with the Constitution is that we put it on autopilot in a lot of ways. We started, we started not, we stopped teaching. There was a specific American background, identity, values, and instead just kind of said, well, you know, the, the, the words themselves can govern anybody. Um, you know, this is, this is why it became, a, you know, th this document that could suddenly be exported all across the world. Just get liberal democracy. We're fighting for democracy. We're going to Iraq or Vietnam or whatever to, to instill democracy. Not, not kind of understanding that, no, actually, this system is not something you can just pick up and drop on kind of any group of people and expect them to magically value all of these things and, and have, you know, freedom. But, uh, you know, the, the founders understood that wasn't the case. However, I think they did perhaps put too much value. We, we didn't have as much understanding as the differentiated social spheres that might have existed in kind of other cultures, which in many ways is to America's credit, right? Like you didn't have kind of these, uh, the, this, this rigid class structure, you know, that a lot of people uh, didn't like, they wanted to get rid of. But it's also a problem because without those kind of different, differentiated cra uh, classes, those differentiated social interests, you don't really have those competing spheres uh, that are going to push back against the government. See, the trick to Montesquieu's divided government, the branches of government, wasn't like the tripod, you know, uh, construction of it. It wasn't the fact that, uh, you know, there was a certain number of branches of government and that's what made government limited. What limited go the government was the fact that other, uh, that other spheres of social power existed, the church, the family, uh, communities, they, the regional powers had this uh, uh, ability to push back against the centralizing sovereignty. Sovereignty isn't actually bound by particular constitutional regulations. It's only really bound by the ability of other spheres of power to compete with it. Now, that was supposed to be what these branches of government did. But the fact that all of them basically just ended up becoming subject to popular sovereignty, subject to uh, you know, kind of just mass democracy meant that all of them ended up falling under the sway of kind of the same homogenizing force, in particular, you know, media and cultural and academic control. And so that meant that those those branches of governments were were not very effective because they didn't really ever represent different social forces inside the United States, different classes, uh, you know, especially we got rid of, you know, you know, direct election of center, senators, all these amendments that, that really broke down what had been any kind of limitation on popular will. 
In fact, they're still trying to get rid of those last little bits, right? Destroy the Senate, destroy uh, the Electoral College. So that that will create more total control for them, right? That's just getting rid of the last few little pieces of uh, kind of competing social interests to work against the masses. And so because of that, uh, you kind of saw the collapse of of kind of the American restrained system. Uh, Reading a little more here from him, he says, the American Constitution was, of course, destroyed in successive waves. After Lincoln and FDR, only a pitiful and derided shell remains. USG has unified under the principle of sovereign power that has been thoroughly re-legitimated in the court of popular opinion. Democracy rose as the, as the republic fell, exposing yet again the essential political bond of the tyrant and the mob, Leviathan with the people. And here we're looking uh, at de juvenile's power analysis, right? We're looking at high and low versus middle. Uh, the you know, kind of the underclass wanted those competing social spheres destroyed because those competing social spheres are kind of where the tradition sits. It's where the traditional powers sits. It's about breaking down that generational advantage and leveling everyone. Uh, and and that is. Uh, kind of how you get tyranny uh, by offering people who are kind of outside uh, kind of these constraints of society and the benefits of society uh, power as long as they'll support you. And that's exactly what democracy did, right? This is why it's so desperate for uh, Democrats to have open borders uh, because they want to use the high and low versus middle function to destroy kind of the established uh, ability of Americans who were already in America to control the government, uh, and they can offer benefits to those newly entering the company, the country, because they don't have any specific loyalty to a tradition of America, to institutions of America, to to regions of America, to families or whatever that already exists in America, uh, and they'll just kind of vote uh, for an enlargement of state power as long as that state kind of uh, uh, promises to rob the middle in order to enrich uh, the bottom and itself and uh this is a pattern we see over and over again uh this is just an, an, an this is just the metaphysics of power as laid out by Bertrand de juvenile uh and of course uh this is how uh the u.s government is actively working to undermine whatever small constraints still exist uh on its power does this ruin refute the constitutional conjecture is there really nothing further to be said in defense of imperfect but perhaps Im, Im, uh improvable knots this one came uh this one came horribly undone might there be other better ones so all he's saying here is okay obviously the US constitution failed to bind sovereignty uh, ultimately uh but does this mean constitutional government is just toast does it mean there's no way to bind uh this stuff does it mean that the ability to limit uh constitutional government uh is just a fu- or limit governments through constitution is just completely a waste of time uh, and he says, you know, it's still a, a subject worth exploring. And uh, I think he's he's right about that. I think that it's it's a mistake to completely say that this is a project that is that is impossible and better to understand that these things always eventually undo themselves. And the question is kind of how best to keep this as long as possible. How how do we continue the traditions? How do we have this con- uh, continue as long as it can before kind of social entropy eventually breaks things down? Every government eventually falls. Every empire eventually comes apart. Uh, every, every civilization has its time uh, and then dies. And uh, this is as true for the United States as anything else. 
so the question is not uh, was was the United States and its ability to kind of restrict sovereignty eventually going to fail? It always was. Uh, it always would. That's not so much a black pill as just a truth about humanity. We all live and then we all die. This is as true for uh, countries and uh, and traditions as it is for individual people. And just as your the question of your life is not how to extend your life infinitely or avoid death, but how best to live your life, uh, you know, how, how, how to live a life of dignity and meaning and purpose, uh, the same is true of your nation. It's, it's not a question of will your nation live forever? It won't. Uh, so knowing that, that it will die just as you will die, the question is, how do you have the best nation? How do you have the best country? How do you have the best group of people? Uh, how do how do you do this uh, so that can it can uh, you know provide the the best life of meaning for people during that time? And so I think uh, when when you have a proper understanding of the truth of kind of the limitations of humanity, human nature, and the governments that it will form, uh, then you have a better chance of creating a government uh, that will br bring a good life to the people that will pursue the good in a way that will uh, enrich everyone and for uh, the time that is as long as possible before it eventually passes away as all things must. All right. So that's everything I have to say on uh, kind of this essay. Like I said, nice short, it's only a page, uh, but obviously there's a lot packed in there. Uh, uh, Xeno systems is a little difficult to get a hold of. It's no longer a web page. You kind of have to just Google for the PDF of it. You'll, you'll be able to find it. Uh, I had to download it long ago, but it's still available out there. Uh, so if you if you're interested in reading Mr. Land's work uh, and specifically the Xeno system fragments, uh, you can do so uh, finding them online. Uh, but I will be continuing this series, breaking down uh, these kinds of essays so we can better understand uh, the work as we move forward. All right, guys, we have a, a few super chats here. So I'm going to go ahead and jump in and answer those. Let's see. Uh, author uh, Arthur T for twenty dollars. It seems that there are boundaries states can cross, especially regarding immigration policies in blue states. Example, refusing to cooperate with the federal government. Do you see red states emulating these trends in the future? Eventually, uh, they will have to. Uh, there's, there's simply no other option. Uh, if, if one side, uh, and you're absolutely right, that the, the Democrats have for a very long time, the, the left progressives, have just completely ignored the law when they want to. They just say, okay, uh, enforce your ruling, right? We're, we're now seeing courts trying to strike down a number of the laws that stop child mutilation, stop uh, gender transition inside their states. And we see a lot of courts trying to strike those down right now. And right-wing states just have to get used to saying, no, like we're not, we're, we're going to keep banning this stuff. Uh, and, uh, if the, you know, the old, the old, uh, Andrew Jackson, you know, it's nice that the, the Supreme court justice has made his ruling. Uh, now he can enforce it. Uh, you know, if, if you are going to just obviously subvert the constitutionally, uh, ascribed ability of states to kind of do this stuff, uh, then we're just going to ignore you because it's very obvious that the, then the federal system no longer works. Uh, that obviously puts you in some pretty dicey territory. The the left states can do this because the deep state agrees with them, right? So even when you have a Republican uh, government, like when you have the Trump administration or something in power, they're not really going after sanctuary cities. They're not really going after sanctuary states. They're not really uh, prosecuting these kind of rogue DAs, these rogue governors. They're not really stopping this stuff. 
mainly because they couldn't get kind of the machinery of state to stop it if they tried. Uh, the people inside the government disagree with the uh, elected representative, the, the, the president, and so they're just not going to do the job. That's why, for instance, when uh, Donald Trump passed that, uh, that executive order that explicitly said, we're not going to do DEI stuff in the government anymore, the federal, you know, the, 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 the executive branch just ignored him. Even though he has direct constitutional power to issue that order, many parts of the executive branch just immediately said, we're just not going to listen to the president and we don't care. What are you going to do about it? However, when Barack Obama did his dear colleague letter saying, uh, you got to let uh, boys use girls' bathrooms if they put on a skirt, uh, everybody, listen, every school immediately changed its policy across the country. Even private businesses uh, immediately changed their policy. He didn't even use a constitutional power. He didn't even use the actual power of his office, as were Donald Trump explicitly did so. Uh, but it didn't matter because the deep state was aligned with uh, with uh, Barack Obama. The cathedral was aligned with Barack Obama. All of the bureaucratic and media apparatus immediately complied uh, with Barack Obama and all of it immediately opposed Donald Trump. And so uh, th there is obviously this thing that goes on constantly where blue states can just get away with what they want because they don't have to fear this the way red states do. However, at some point, uh, red states are just going to have to grow a spine and say no. Uh, and that puts us in a very interesting uh, position, of course, because then the government does actually care when a state says no. Right now, the government doesn't care if blue states say no because they agree with blue states. But if red states say no, uh, now, now they've got to make some decisions. You saw this a little bit with DeSantis and COVID, right? Uh, you, you saw him pushing back in ways that weren't really approved uh, by the deep state. Uh, they made a lot of threats, but they didn't take a lot of action. So, uh, you know, the, the only thing, the only way you'll find out is if uh, governors, red state governors, uh, you know, decide to grow the spine and uh, and kind of do the same thing that blue state governors and blue city mayors do on a regular basis. Uh, let's see. Uh, uh, Florida Henry here for $10. Never mind college. I saw firsthand in the military, police and fire departments, HR use essays and interviews to promote their own yes men. Yeah, again, this is this is the switch they're going to make, right? Data is increasingly actually a problem for the left. So as the left fights against reality, as it pushes back against reality, uh, the collection of data becomes a significant problem because data just keeps reflecting reality, uh, which is why you're seeing a lot of people in on the left say, hey, we know, well, we trust the science, except when the science says the wrong thing or you know, except when science says something we disagree with, or actually science shouldn't research this issue at all because we're worried about what the data might reveal. And that's going to be the case with affirmative action. Affirmative action is just a data goldmine that kind of says all kinds of things that the regime doesn't want people to think about. Uh, and so, uh, and, and, and data is also a problem. Data collection is a problem when it comes to proving uh, that they are treating different groups, uh, you know, they're favoring different groups. So they're just going to get rid of it, right? They're, they're going to get rid of these tests, these objective tests. And instead, uh, they're going to find new ways to launder their uh, racial preferences, their hiring preferences uh, to kind of favor different groups. That's, uh, again, a win and a loss. Uh, the, you know, the, the loss is that this stuff kind of goes underground. It gets harder to track in some ways. The win is twofold. It, one, it creates this legal avenue for, for conservatives and, and people on the right in general to fight back. But two, and this one probably is actually more important, 
it once it kind of puts a lie again for for those who are still and believe it or not i know people who watch this are like how can anyone believe this but lots of people still do for people who still believe that this stuff actually restrains uh the government and your ruling class the elites actually have to listen to court rulings that they really have to follow the law that they really have to do this like there is a value in making these people break the law there's a value in making these people ignore the law and show everybody that the law doesn't matter, that they don't care what the Supreme Court uh, says, that they do what they want. Uh, because every time they have to flex like that, it becomes very obvious uh, that kind of this this uh, this kind of skin suit of the constitutional order is, uh, is a lie. And that allows people to kind of understand uh, kind of what game is actually being played. All right, uh, Deuce Boogaloo uh, for $20. Very good. I appreciate the uh, lizard lizard man uh, uh, icon there. I'm a Hoppian who really enjoys your content, although we disagree on whether the ring can be destroyed, especially in the sense no one's ever tried. I find Interax Foss to be interesting. I'm glad at least we agree on who the enemies are. Yeah, man, absolutely. So I've said this a million times, and I'll say it you know one more time. Uh, Hop is the best libertarian because uh, he takes his understanding of power from Bertrand to Juvenile. If you love Democracy, the God that Failed, just go and read the original, which is On Power by Bertrand Juvenal. Uh, half of Democracy, the God that Failed, the, the, the famous book by Hans Hermann Hoppe, is uh, him just kind of restating in libertarian language uh, Juvenal's understanding of power. Now, the other half of that book is him talking about kind of this, this you know, the law society and everything like that. Uh, I do think there are serious flaws to that. It might be more interesting. I'm actually rereading A Democracy that Got It Failed because I know eventually at some point me and Dave Smith will have another podcast and we agreed too much last time. Uh, so I want to be ready to, to actually bring substantive uh, disagreements on kind of the, the, the more Hoppian strain. Uh, but of course, Interx itself is just a post-Hoppian philosophy. Uh, it, it onboards all of the lessons of, of kind of these uh, paleo-libertarians and, and, and Hans Hermann Hoppe it simply thinks that they don't uh, take them to kind of their logical conclusion. Uh, so we can find lots of ground for agreement uh, uh, between Hoppians and people who kind of hew a little closer to the neo-reactionary side, uh, because at the end of the day, they are they came from a very similar route, uh, and their disagreements, while significant, um, are not so much that they can't uh, kind of uh, have civil and productive discussions around uh, those differences. So thank you very much. I appreciate that. Uh, Florida Henry for $2. Does the 14th amendment destroy the constitution? Uh, yes. Uh, yeah. The, the 14th amendment or, uh, the, the, the interpretation of the 14th amendment, I guess you could say, uh, that stands today, uh, is basically a blank check, uh, to kind of override, uh, a large chunks of the constitution. Uh, obviously it was, it was necessary to, to some extent at, at the time, uh, large questions of post-slavery uh, citizenship and other things uh, are being uh, addressed in the 14th Amendment, but the 14th Amendment also addresses a bunch of different things. So it, the, the, I guess the question also means like, what part of the 14th Amendment are you talking about? Uh, you know, and so, so uh, you know, there's, there's that as well. But yeah, equal protection clause of the 14th Amendment is one of those, uh, it's like the, uh, like the interstate commerce clause or the necessary and proper clause uh, they're called elastic clauses for a reason because you can really stretch them to make the Constitution do whatever you want. And of course, this is the problem. This is why constitutions cannot in and of themselves bind uh, the, the power of the government. 
because uh, if the interpretation of the Constitution changes to the point where it doesn't really mean what it said in the first place, uh, then you've kind of just undone the entire Constitution anyway. Uh, you're, you're all just looking at kind of uh, weird and complicated justifications for why it's okay for you to violate the Constitution this time, uh, which is what we do pretty much all the time now when we're looking at constitutional law. Uh, the, the, what binds the, the thing of, about a constitution that binds it is that it, that binds the government is that it's a reflection of the values of the people. As long as the traditions and values and folkways of the people are properly uh, animated, uh, then the constitution reflects those and the government is constrained by those. Uh, but once they are gone, the words on the paper don't really matter. And the 14th amendment is just one of the many, uh, ways that can, that they can kind of escape this. The point here to understand, guys, is that while the 14th Amendment and its and its elasticity is a problem, ultimately the problem is not just one of a better set of contract law. The, the problem with the American Constitution is not that, oh, it just it's just flawed contract law. That that's a mindset to get out of. Though all of these things are a problem. Like I'm not I'm not saying that they aren't and that they shouldn't be fixed if you could fix them somehow. But even if you did, that's not really the issue. The problem is our understanding of what it means to be a nation, what it means to be a people, what it means to, uh, to, you know, to have a tradition that binds the government. Uh, it, it is the, it is the people, its traditions and it va its values, uh, that actually bind the government, not the words on paper. And so having better designed words on paper would not in and of itself actually kind of stop what happened with the constitution, though I'm sure it certainly couldn't hurt. All right, guys, I think we got through all the questions there. Thank you so much for joining me. Uh, like I said, wanted to do the stream, had it planned for a while, uh, but then that affirmative action news broke and, uh, you know, you, you got to talk about it because it's just so important. And I think in many ways it does dovetail to what we're saying here, right? Uh, I think it really does. Uh, yeah, yes, you can change the words of the affirmative action clause uh, or the way that that uh, that the affirm affirmative action stuff is understood and interpreted, interpreted. Uh, you can uh, try to change what universities do uh, with their admissions uh, processes and stuff. But if the if the values of the people don't stand against what the universities are doing, then universities will continue to do it even if the law has technically changed. The only way that what they're doing stops is if the people. Uh, and their traditions stand against that stuff. If they're animated in a significant way that will kind of put an end to, uh, you know, racial racial discrimination against people like uh, Asian and white people, uh, only if people are willing to stand up against that and say that that's not okay uh, and do so and, and, you know, do so in a significant way through lawfare, those kind of things. Uh, that's the only way you're actually going to see this stuff end uh, you know, the ruling in and of itself, it doesn't stop that. And you can already see the fact that these, you know, that these uh, institutions, these colleges are already, you know, winking and nodding that, oh, we'll follow the law while pointing directly at the loophole they, they plan to exploit kind of shows you uh, what the path forward might look like if, uh, if the American people and more importantly, uh, the, the leaders of kind of the right are not willing to follow through with that legal action. Uh, and that and that enforcement, uh, then then the ruling will kind of basically just be vacant uh, right at the start. All right, guys. So if you enjoyed this stream and you would like to subscribe, go ahead and join the channel by subscribing. You can hit that bell so you get the notifications. Hearing some people saying they're not getting the notifications when stream starts or you know when when a new episode's out. If you want to see that stuff, 
guys, I know it's stupid, but YouTube's like, just because you subscribe to your channel doesn't mean you actually want to like see the videos or know what's going on. So you got to you got to hit the notifications, you know, the bell, all that stuff. Uh, and then, of course, if you want to get these broadcasts as podcasts, make sure that you subscribe to the Orm McIntyre show on your favorite podcast platforms. When you do that, please leave rating or review that really helps with the algorithm. Thank you for coming by, guys. And as always, I will talk to you next time.